while. We're going to stick with this class. We're going to be in the book of Exodus. We're going to be going to a story fast forward to the Jewish people coming out of the land of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and they are about to get the Torah. And they, as they wait for 40 day, 49 days, counting every single day towards the receiving of the Torah, Moshe comes down, goes up on the mountain, Moses comes down from the mountain, and they hear the Ten Commandments. But 40 days later, the Jewish people sin, and Moses comes down the mountain, seeing the Jewish people in their sins, drops the tablets, breaks them to the ground, and only later, another 80 days later, God calls him back and says, here's time to write a second set of tablets, come back, and on the day of Yom Kippur is when God atones and forgives the Jewish people, and Jewish history marches on. But is the story that simple? Today we're going to take a closer look into the story and look at these puzzling a tale of the, of the two tablets and its event and how it happened on the Jewish people and the impact that it made on the relationship with God in our life as well today. And as we did in our previous lessons, we first play a video of the actual text of the story of the Torah, how it's inscribed and detailed in the Torah from the actual written law. And then we expound and go and look at it from all the different effects. Today, we're going to split our story in three parts. The first part is going to be the giving of the Torah at Sinai, how it all unfolds. We're then going to see the golden calf and the breaking of the first tablets. And then finally, the third part of our story is getting the second tablets. We are going to be doing, we are going to be doing this, uh, if you can find this in your textbook on page 142. This is going to be text one if you want to follow along with the video. of the children of Israel's exodus from the land of Egypt. On this day, they arrived in the Sinai Desert, and Israel encamped there opposite the mountain. Moses ascended to God, and God called to him from the mountain to say, So shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to Egypt. I carried you on the wings of eagles and brought you to me. And now, if you will listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my own treasure from among all peoples. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses came and called the elders of Israel, and he placed before them all these words. And all the people replied in unison, and they said, All that God has spoken, we will do. It was on the third day, when it was morning, there were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud upon the mountain and the sound of the shofar, exceedingly strong. Moses brought the people out from the camp toward God, and they stood beneath the mountain. God descended upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. God spoke all these words to say, I am God, your God, who took you out from the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not make for yourselves a graven form or an image of anything in the heaven above or on the earth below. Do not bow to them and do not serve them. Do not take the name of God your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your fellow. Do not covet anything that is your fellow's. And all the people saw the sounds and the torches, and the sound of the shofar, and the smoking mountain. And the people saw and trembled, and they stood from afar. And to Moses he said, Come up to God, 
Moses entered within the cloud, and he ascended the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. And when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave to Moses the two tablets of the Testament, tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. If you were to name one event that changed human history more than any other, what would it be? Anything. Okay. I would like to propose, as you can see over here, is that the giving of the Torah is probably the most monumental event ever to happen in history. Why? And here's why. In a few, uh, last year actually, in winter, we did a course called Judaism's Gifts to the World. And we spoke about in that course how documents every single part of civilization today. The bedrock of human civilizations, principles of sanctity of life, justice, charity, quest for world peace, all of them come from Judaism. All of them come from the Torah. If God forbid the Torah wouldn't have been given, all these principles which caused the flood or caused human creation to deteriorate would, wouldn't be there because it caused them to deteriorate for that reason. So what we have today, every event that we talk about in the world today, or try to imagine a world that is not predict, uh, predict, uh, uh, based on these values and based on these principles. Imagine a world where Judaism's influence of these things what would the world look like today? Probably something more like before the flood. And if not for the Torah being received by the Jewish people 3,000 years ago, we are these principles then extended to humanity at large to learn from these principles, what would the world be like? Now, of course, there are other events in Judaism and other events that happened throughout Judaism, throughout the Torah, throughout history, whether it was Moses of the burning bush, Abraham coming into the land of Israel, or Abraham discovering God, Joshua coming into the land of Israel. But those are all events that happened within the scope of the Torah being given. If the Torah wouldn't be given, who cares if Abraham would have discovered God if people don't keep it, or if there's no rules to apply it. Like Moses himself tells the Jewish people in text number two, you can see this on page 145. Moses tells the people, ask now, after the early days that came before you, from the day that God created man upon the earth and from the one, of the on one end of the heavens to the other, has there ever been like this great thing? Or has anything like it been heard? Has a people heard the voice of God speaking from within the fire as you heard and lived? You were made to see, to know that God is the God. There is none else besides him. What is, what is Moses telling the Jewish people here? Moses is telling the Jewish people the greatness of this event. This is the most unbelievable, unprecedented event ever to happen. But why is it so unique? And there are really many reasons why this event is unique, and I'm sure many of them you can imagine on your own. But today we're going to focus on two reasons of why this event is unique. The first is a theological one, and the second is a mystical one. The first, the theological one, we'll be going to be reading from a passage of the Kuzari. The Kuzari is a fundamental book of Jewish theology that was written by a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Levi. Rabbi Yehuda Levi lived about from 1075 to 1141. The Kuzari has an interesting story behind it, just a cute little tidbit of history on the side. The Kuzari is composed of a form of a dialogue between the king of the Khazars and the Jewish sage, who the king then challenges him to demonstrate the difference between Judaism and any other religion. And it was said in front of a Muslim, a Christian, and a Jew. And he debated Judaism, and he wanted the rabbi to prove Judaism's authenticity. Kazaria was an actually a very powerful kingdom that flourished between the 7th and 12th centuries, what is today known as Southeast Russia. In the beginning of the 8th century, the king and the ruling class of the Khazar kingdom actually converted to Judaism. 
And over the next three centuries, many Jews found refuge there from persecution from other places as well. So therefore, generally speaking, Rabbi Yehuda Levi, when he wrote his book to Kuzari, was written in a way of a dialogue of explaining to a, so to speak, a foreigner, concepts in Judaism made in a very simplistic and theological level. Not necessarily from a spiritual perspective, but more theological perspective. And the following passage is unique because it talks about the revelation of Mount Sinai. The following passage is also well known, as I'm sure you may have heard it, is called the Kuzari principle of trying to show the authenticity of Torah. And here it is in text number three, page 146. Moses, the first Jewish leader, was not like them, the founders of other religions. He brought the entire people to stand at Mount Sinai for them to see it their own eyes, each in accordance with their ability, the revelation that he saw, as the verse states, they saw the God of Israel. They could all affirm to each other what they saw and what they heard. This removed from the heart of the nation the terrible suspicion, perhaps all that is just a claim of a few individuals, that prophecy came to them, for it is not possible to create a conspiracy in full sight of the masses. One of the unique things that Judaism has over any other religion is that Judaism was an event the giving of the Torah was an event that every single Jew experienced. It wasn't that Moses told them, God told, gave me the Ten Commandments. All the Jewish people at Mount Sinai directly experienced the Ten Commandments. Not only that, the Talmud explains that the two first two commandments, the Jews themselves heard from, so to speak, the mouth of God until they said, we're going to expire if we continue to hear it. Moses, you tell it to us, rest. But the revelation, the spiritual revelation that happened to Mount Sinai, all two million people experienced the same. There wasn't a prophet to tell them this is what happened. There was no need of some proof. They were all there. That's from a spiritual perspective. That means, that means from a theological, I'm sorry. They directly experienced it. It wasn't hearsay. It wasn't because a prophet told you so. In every other religion other than Judaism, what they know about the authenticity about the religion is based on one person's uh, say-so, or one person's tradition, or one person's vision, or one person's prophecy. Were there prophecies in Judaism as well? But the actual monumental time where God made the covenant with the Jewish people, every single Jewish person experienced at the time. It was a public event. There was no way of disputing it. From a mystical perspective, it takes on a different dimension. If you look in text number two, what did Moses tell the Jewish people? Moses tells the Jewish people, you are made to see, to know that God is the God. He uses the terminology, we say it every single Saturday in the synagogue, you are able to see, to know. And why does he have to say to see that the Jewish people saw at Mount Sinai? What did they see at Mount Sinai? So the Talmud explains, as you can see it in text number four, they saw what was heard. And they heard what is seen. Now, what is he telling us of here? Obviously, God is not a physical object that they were able to see. So what does it mean that they saw God at Mount Sinai? So it says all the Jewish people saw the sounds and if this is back in text number one, you can see they saw the sounds and the torches and the sound of the shofar and the smoking mountains. And the people saw and they trembled. What did they see that because of that they trembled? So what did Rabbi Akiva explain? And he says, what did the Mechilta tell us? They saw what is heard and they heard what is seen. It sounds like some psychedelic experience. What are you all mixed up? Certainly God didn't turn our sensory tools upside down. So what does it mean they saw what is heard and heard what is seen? So before we go on to the next step, let's just put this out here. And the Hebrew word in Hebrew for heard, Shema, doesn't just mean to hear. But shema also means to comprehend. You don't just hear something. Hearing is passive. But hearing and understanding, so when they heard, meaning that they also understood. But what does that mean? What's the difference? Which is better, let me ask you. Reading a novel? Or watching the movie? 
You say reading, you say watching. Why do you say watching? Because I can immerse myself into the scenery. Okay, and you say reading? Because I get more into the characters. Okay, why do you say reading? Oh, okay. <laughs> when you read, what you, which is better? Now, it all depends what you call what's better. The question is not what you feel enjoyment more, but let's ask the question a little differently. Which one makes a stronger impression? When you watch it in a movie or when you read it in a book? When you read it. Okay. Well, there are advantages of seeing over hearing. Later, we'll talk about advantages over hearing over seeing, but let's talk about the advantages over seeing over hearing. One of the advantages of seeing over hearing is number one, it's a firsthand experience. It's indisputable. When you hear something, it's only hearsay, exactly what hearsay means. It's secondhand. This guy said, that's what happened. Believe him or don't believe him. Sight, seeing something, is also more convincing. If I hear about something, I can say, eh, it's not necessarily true. I can find a hundred excuses. I can say, maybe it did happen, maybe it didn't happen, maybe you retold the story wrong. Just how many times a person can hear a story directly from the source, and within 25 minutes, already the story grows fingers, nuts, and tails, and everything else. What happens over here when it comes to seeing? Seeing, you say, I saw it. Don't tell me. I saw it in front of my eyes. I saw it with my own eyes. It's indisputable. That's true, but that's because they're, today they can do everything with Photoshop. But, but the bottom line is, when I see something, it's almost indisputable. Number three, physical things can be seen. Why? Because they're tangible, because they're real. In the same way I can see something, I can experience it because since I see it. On the other hand, spiritual realities are not real in that same way. We can only hear about spiritual realities. I can't see, at least most of us, cannot see spiritual realities. There may be logical proofs. I can experience a miracle, but I still don't see the spiritual utopia, the spiritual osmosis, or the spiritual concept. It's more a matter of faith that I accept and I trust that this is true. Based on this, let's go a step further. Let's go now to what happened by Mount Sinai. Let's see text number five. What did they hear? Oops, I'm sorry. This is what the giving of the Torah achieved, that they saw what is heard and they heard what is seen. That which is ordinarily heard spiritually and godliness, which can only be perceived through hearing, the people of Israel perceived it with certainty and tangibility of sight. They saw godliness, on the other hand, material things which are ordinarily seen, they now heard. The materiality of the world was like something that is perceived by hearing of logical deduction. What happened by Mount Sinai, the Rebbe explains to us, is that the revelation of Sinai made real the truth of God. That means both on a practical level, like the Guzari explains, because it was an indisputable event. Millions of people experienced this unbelievable spiritual transformation. But even more so, the revelation of Sinai made real The revelation of Sinai made real spirituality. That those people that stood at Mount Sinai, the most fundamental, fundamental beliefs of Judaism became real to them. Not only that, the materialism took a sideshow. So that was like hearing. Like a logical deduction that you make to be able to understand and appreciate spirituality. That's what the way they were feeling towards materialism. And spirituality became number one. Now let's go to the second part of our story where the Jewish people unfortunately sin with the golden cat. The people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain and the people massed upon Aaron and they said to him, Arise, make us a God who will go before us for this man Moses who brought us up from the land of Egypt we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, 
Remove the golden rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. He took them from their hand, and he formed it with a graving tool, and he made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. They arose early in the morrow, and they offered up burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and to drink, and they got up to make merry. Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testament were in his hand. The tablets were the handiwork of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And it was when he drew closer to the camp and he saw the calf in the dances, Moses' anger was kindled, and he threw the tablets from his hands, and he broke them beneath the mountain. as we spoke about before we continue in our story where after the Jewish people received the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai not even 40 days later what happens the Jewish people sin what sin did they do they break the first and the second commandment that God gave them that they heard directly from God how is this possible just a few short weeks ago 40 days how many weeks is that five weeks six weeks not even the Jewish people experienced the most divine revelation that any humankind ever had in history. God comes along and says himself, I am God that took you out of Egypt. An undisputed event. Millions of people were there. What did they do 40 days later? They violated every single precept of that commandment. God says, I am your God. What did they do? They make another God. They say, This is the God that took us out of Egypt. How did the Jewish people do that? What kind of chutzpah? Did they just forget with such short-term memory? Did they forget about the revelation? It's no wonder that Moses then took those tablets and smashed them to the ground. What use is the tablets? If for 40 days they can't even keep it. Now, of course, the Talmud explains that when Moses smashed the tablets, this was saving the Jewish people because this was like getting rid of the marriage contract which showed that the Jewish people are, so to speak, not married, so therefore they didn't have the commitment, whatever it may be. But if we look at the single most important event in human history, an event that would establish the covenant of the Jewish people with God seems to be a colossal failure. God comes along and makes this event with all the fanfare, with the chauffeur blowing the thunder, the lightning, and all the wonderful things that happen, and poof, out the door it goes. Not even 40 days was able to last. So before we can make sense into this mystery, let's dig a little deeper. Let's dig a little deeper into the story. Rabbi? Yes. Um, was Aaron the one that uh, suggested making the calf? Aaron was the one that suggested finding a delaying tactic that he said, what's the first thing you want to do to be able to delay Jews? What do you do? Make them pay for it. So he says, make sure and bring me money. He says the delaying tactic was bring your gold. And he thought they would be reluctant to bring any gold. And that's why, just on a side note, the only ones that didn't participate were the women. They did not give their gold. And that's why the women were gifted with a special holiday called Rosh Chodesh. But once Adam, Aaron took the gold, he threw it into a fire. There was another fellow who came along and threw a piece of parchment in that Moses wrote to be able to get Joseph's bones out of Egypt, which said a rise calf, and he threw that into the fire, and that's why a golden calf came out. But that's a separate story. Let's not get a little sidetracked. But let's go a little deeper into the story of the broken tablets before we get to answer this question. Does this story of the broken tablets at all remind you of any other episode that we spoke about where God so to speak builds something up and it's pretty much a failure very quickly Adam and Eve Adam and Eve Adam and Eve who are Adam and Eve God's creation God told them himself do not eat from the tree of knowledge as we mentioned and only a few hours left according to most commentaries that they wouldn't have to eat from the tree of knowledge and what happened poof they couldn't hold themselves in Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. Soon after that, they transgressed with the only and first commandment that God gave them. 
very similar to the Jewish people. The following passage in the Medrash actually parallels the two sins of the sin of the tree of knowledge and the sin of the golden calf and shows how they're exactly alike. Let's see how this happens. One of the reasons is, as before we get into the Medrash, is if you look at the card at the at the first set of tablets, the first set of tablets, as we talk about in text number six, says that they were engraved. The word engraved is charut, but the word engraved charut doesn't only mean engraved, also comes from the word cherus, which means freedom, liberation. The key word over here is engraved. But now let's see how the Medrash understands the liberation that came with this first set of tablets. Text number seven, page 151 in your student book. This is the meaning of what is written. I said you are divine. And as eternal being, you are all like Adam, you will die. Had the people of Israel, listen to this, waited for Moses and not done that deed, neither the exiles of the Jewish people nor the angel of death would have any power over them. Thus it is written. The writing was the word writing of God, Harut engraved on the tablets. What is the meaning of Harut, Cherut, freedom from exile, freedom from the angel of death? When the people of Israel proclaimed all that God has spoken, we will do and we will hear, God said, I commanded one mitzvah to Adam for him to fulfill. And he likened them to the ministering angels. This people will fulfill the 613 commandments. Is it not fitting that they should live and exist forever? But when they proclaimed, this is your God, O Israel, they became mortal. Said God, who followed in the ways of Adam, the first man, who did not hold out for three hours, and on the ninth hour of the day, death was decreed upon him. I said you are divine, but because you followed in Adam's path, indeed like Adam, you will die. In other words, the breaking of the tablets was basically a repeat of story number one. First tablets, Garden of Eden, right? Golden calf, tree of knowledge, breaking of the tablets, expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Each one of them, what happens? The world is in a state of perfection. By the first tablets, there were going to be no angel of death. There was going to be absolute harmony, bliss. Just like the Garden of Eden, all of a sudden the sin comes, the sin of the golden calf, and then the sin of the tree of knowledge, followed by all of a sudden the breakdown of this ideal state, which is by Adam and Eve expelled from the Garden of Eden, and by the Jewish people, the breaking of the tablets. But what happens next? What's the second part of the story? The people realize that they made us, did something wrong. They repent. They ask God for forgiveness. Moses goes up back onto the mountain and pleads to God, come on, give my people a second chance. Give your people a second chance. God forgives the Jewish people and tells Moses, reinscribe the Torah on a second set of tablets. Okay, so everything was set right. Well, we know the people experience at the end of the day, it seems like it was set right, but guess what? Where are we now? There's exile. Where are we now? Unfortunately, the angel of death still has his hand away around. That means we did not go back to that original utopia. Though God forgave the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf, but he did not bring it back to the original state. Let's understand the difference between the first set, and the second, the first set of tablets and the second set of tablets. So we'll go back now to our third part of the story where Moses is told by God to, have, to make and inscribe the second set of tablets. Let's see text number eight, and we're going to have the video for text number eight. God said to Moses, carve yourself two stone tablets like the first, and I will write upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. He carved two stone tablets like the first, and Moses rose early in the morning, and he ascended Mount Sinai as God had commanded him, and he took in his hand two stone tablets. And he was there with God for forty days and forty nights. 
and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. What we see over here is, if we look at these verses that we just read, what would be the difference between the first set of tablets versus the second set of tablets? And if you look in figure 5.1 that you have in front of you, as we'll go through it now, the three items listed in this table, the difference between the first set of tablets versus the second set. The first item on our table is the state of the world. The state of the world at the time by the first set of tablets would have been a state of perfection. Like we mentioned before, Harut, freedom, freedom of the angel of death, freedom of any slavery, freedom of any exiles. But unfortunately with the second set of tablets that did not come. Death and struggle continued with the second set of tablets. As we go to the next step, the tablets themselves. The tablets themselves, in the first set of tablets, as we read in text number six, were the handiwork of God. The second set of tablets, who wrote them? Moses. In both cases, God himself wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets. But the difference was that the first set of tablets was the handiwork of God, while the second one, Moses was the one that actually carved it. And then he carved them and he carried them up with him when he went up to Mount Sinai. In other words, the first set of the first set of tablets, both the content and the medium of how they were delivered were divine. The second set of tablets, the content is and was divine, but the medium, how it was brought, was divine by human manufacture, which was through Moses. Yes. The first set of tablets, when Hashem, um, not wrote them, but inscribed them on, I mean- Engraved them. Engraved them. They were able to be read on either side. From both sides, correct. Correct. The same. The second set of tablets did not have that feature. Okay, so they were not as- They were engraved. Of course, because they were not the handiwork of God. They were carved by human. They had the depth, but not as miraculous as the first ones, correct? So what? Which brings us to the next item. The composition of the Torah. According to the Talmud, the first set of tablets, the original ones which God gave the Torah, was only the written law. While the second set of tablets also included the oral law. What does that mean? So if we look in text number nine on page 155. Said God to Moses, do not be distressed over the first tablets which contained only the Ten Commandments. In the second tablets, I am giving you Halacha, Medrash, and Haggadah. Text number 10, the Talmud continues, had not Israel sinned with the golden calf, they would have received only the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua. Why? Because as the verse says, much wisdom comes through much grief. What does this mean? What are the sages telling us here? So here's a little quick overview of what we talk about the difference between the written law and the oral law. The Torah generally consists of two parts. The written law, which we know as the Ten Commandments, the 610 Commandments plus the 613 Commandments within the Ten Commandments, which is the basis, the nucleus of the 613 Commandments, which God communicated to Moses on Mount Sinai, And then Moses delivered that to the Jewish people as he came down from the mountain. First, he delivered it to Aaron and his sons, then to the elders, and then to all the Jewish people at large, and which was inscribed in the Torah, which we read every single week in the synagogue, as we have known today as the five books of Moses, or in other words, the Chumash, as in the Torah scroll that we have. This written law, this written Torah, is meticulously preserved from generation to generation over the past 3,000 years, You can walk into any synagogue in the universe and you will find the same 304,000 letters to the T. Not a letter is changed. Nothing. It's exactly the same. That is the written law. Together with the written law also came the oral law. 
What is the oral law? The oral law is interpretation, exposition, explanations, interpolation, all the different details of the laws. So for example, what, how I'm supposed to put, up, put on the tefillin, where I'm supposed to put the tefillin, what color should the tefillin be, and how it should be written, all the details and the minutia, so to speak, of the laws, those, that is the oral law. The oral law would include the Talmud, the Medrash, the Zohar, the Kabbalah, the mysticism, the Esoteric, all that is the oral law. Talmud, Mishnah, Code of Jewish Law, Zohar, all that is Jewish law. And this, every single generation continue to elaborate based on the previous generations. And with that, every one of those generations continue to, on their own, by the human understanding, extrapolate it according to the relevance that is needed for the time and day that they live. So if you want to separate the two, you will say the written law, by definition, is a divine revelation. The oral law is the human understanding and extrapolation of the written law. Now the question is, why do I need both? Why couldn't God, who is brilliant, make a written law? And I get this question probably so many times. Why couldn't God just write everything clearly in the Torah? Why did he need the rabbis to extrapolate them, to argue, and to have differences of opinion? And Ashkenazic Jews do like this, and Sephardic Jews do like this, and, no, and some Jews do it in both. Why couldn't God state everything clearly in the written law? Why couldn't everything just be in the written law? So there are many answers which are given. One answer is barely even people make it for the whole Torah reading. It would be how long the Torah reading would be. But that's not the reason. There are many answers that are given, and the basic reason is, and a more practical level is, the Torah is a guide to our life. The Torah addresses every single aspect and issue that arises in our life. It is impossible for a finite book to address infinite, idea, infinite amounts of ideas, to have every single aspect of our life addressed in the Torah. So what the Torah gives us is the tools, the general outline for all the life lessons that we need. And from there, we extrapolate and bring it to the relevance. Because at the end of the day, the Torah in the finite words is 304,000 words and there are letters, I'm sorry, and it has a finite, so to speak, ream of what it consists of. Within the finite words, we can then extrapolate for generations to come. Indeed, God could have found some way to make everything, but God communicated to mankind via prophecy and saintly men throughout the ages what he wanted to communicate and instruct them as he did through Moshe. And indeed, according to, as we mentioned before, originally, there was going to be only an written law. But then God decided that, you know what, that was the first tablet. And that both are needed. The first tablet model was that all the content was going to be divine. No human intervention. That was in the first way of things. But with the second set of tablets, God saw things differently. And he says, there's going to be a written law that's going to have the basic laws. There's going to be a written law which is going to tell me the principles and the halachic outline. But the task of interpreting the laws, the task of explaining the laws, of going into the detail, would then need human intervention. That would not be divine revelation. That medium were going to be human. The question that I have for you is, which is more important, which is more effective, I should say? Divine, and we'll put the question up here, divine revelation or human development? Which do you think has more of a method, more of an effective method, human intervention, the first way, the first tablets, divine revelation, or the second way, human extrapolation of the divine content? Okay. It seems obvious that seemingly method number A would be more advantageous. What can be better if I get it all from God himself? What do I need people to mess up? What do I need people to come change it and argue and decide what it should be? But if we look a little closer, look back at text number 9 and 10. Text number 9 and 10, what does God tell Moses? Don't be distressed over the first tablets which contain the Ten Commandments. I am giving you also, that means he's giving him an advantage. It sounds like Moshe is being told by God that you're not only not being gypped by having the second commandments, 
but you're getting something you wouldn't have gotten earlier. That there's an advantage of the oral law. The gift of the oral law, of the halacha, the medrash and the agada is something that you now got that you wouldn't have gotten before and that's an added bonus to it. And why is that? So let's understand the advantage of the second tablet over the first tablets. And to understand this, we need to go back to our original question that we asked. What went wrong? How did the Jewish people at Mount Sinai mess up so royally? What went wrong? How was that? But just 40 days earlier, God came to them. When they just experienced the greatest divine revelation of all time. One of the clues to this puzzle will take us to an interesting description that the Torah tells us just a passage before it happened. If you look at text number one in your textbook, it would be on page 143, line 26. Go back to line 26 and line 27. What does the Torah say there? They stood beneath the mountain. What does it mean they stood beneath the mountain? Shouldn't it say they stood at the bottom of the mountain? But actually the Talmud explains that they stood under the mountain. What does it mean they stood under the mountain? The Talmud goes on to tell us, you can see it in text number 11. Text number 11 this teaches us on page 157, this teaches us that God overturned the mountain over them like a cask and said to them, if you will accept the Torah, fine. If not, this shall be your burial. Now, this changes the whole dynamic of the scene. It's no more lovingly, God, we're going to keep the Torah. It's God puts a mountain on top of them and says, hey, guys, either you accept the Torah or I drop this mountain on you. They were coerced. No surprise that 40 days later they dropped it. Moshe brought them the message of God for one second. Then why did they say later, all that God will spoke to us, we will do? Did they, were they coerced or were they, were, were they willfully decide to do it? Let's see text number 12. How do we reconcile page 158? How do we reconcile the saying of the sages, God overturned the mountain of them like a cast, but the fact that the people were willing to respond we will do and we will hear. The deeper meaning is as follows. When the people of Israel stood at Mount Sinai, only 50 days had elapsed from their exodus of Egypt, which was the most debased place in the world in terms of decadent character as well known. This was not sufficient time for them to make the transition from one extreme to the other and achieve a genuine recognition of the value of the Torah. Rather, this recognition was forced on them from above when the light of truth was revealed to them so powerfully that they tangibly see that the Torah and the mitzvahs were the ultimate good and that without them, their lives were not worth living. In the most literal sense, they therefore proclaimed with all their heart and soul, we will do and we will hear. However, because this did not achieve this recognition in a progressive, methodical way by their own efforts, but rather as a gift and a flash of illumination from the above. Once the moment of the revelation had passed, nothing but faint impression of it remained. You know, imagine a time we are inspired. You have that overwhelmingly reason a miraculous event happens in your life. The rabbi gives a stirring, touching sermon. Then you walk in and say, wow, I'm going to become different. Rosh Hashanah passes. The Yom Kippur Kol Nidre sermon, okay, yeah, it was a great sermon, but life moves on. You get all excited, you're all passionate, I'm going to change the world, but as time walks on, no, you move on. What is it? Did you not get excited at that moment? You were perfectly excited. Were you not passionate and committed at that moment? You were. But what's the difference? That miraculous, that moment was just a revelation from above. It can shake you to your core. But 10 minutes later, you could start rationalizing it. You can start explaining it. And you can even walk away from it and even deny it. Why? Because you did not participate in the journey. The moment there's a human development, the moment you have skin in the game, automatically you become transformed. The moment I have to do something for it, 
I automatically get transformed because of it. And that transformation stays with me. The Sinai revelation was exactly the same. The Sinai revelation, God descended to Mount Sinai and told the Jewish people, boom, I am God. He had that miraculous revelation. They were shook to the core. They bounced back. But as time settled in, they were still entrenched in the idolatry of Egypt. And they had no problem going back to it. Why? Because they did nothing. It was a temporary inspiration that came and went. They had no skin in the game. But what happens with the second tablet? All of a sudden with the second tablets, the real change came. The Jewish people no longer were dependent on this miraculous, drastic revelation that came from heaven. They needed to ask God for repentance. They had to change from within. They had to be ready to accept the second set of tablets. They all of a sudden were changed as people. There was a human transformation. That was lasting. That was eternal. The real change came along only once where there was a second set of tablets. Once there was a human development, then became a per- permanent transformation. And most importantly, where did it come from? Where did that human intervention come from? Where did the permanent transformation come from? From pain, suffering, exile, realizing that they lost the chance opportunity. The struggles of life, that's where the biggest transformation occurs. Think about it. When do we as humans change? When do we as humans come to see a difference? Because somebody shines on us a big light? Or when we all of a sudden go through some type of transformative moment in life, may it be tragic or a struggle, that is the biggest time that a person goes through an everlasting change that affects their life. The second set of tablets was that human transformation that created a permanent development in the permanent transformation in the Jewish people. Now let's go back a step. Remember we said the difference between seeing and hearing? What was the advantage of seeing? It's on the spot. I see it. You can't deny it. But what's what's the advantage of hearing over seeing? When I see something... I cannot be objective. I'm objective, I'm sorry. When I see something, I see it. That's exactly what I see. You are not going to convince me otherwise. But when I hear it, I become subjective. What happens when I hear something? Like Sherman said before, it's because he's a lawyer, therefore he takes the hearing part of it. When you hear something, think of it this way. I hear one statement, a second paragraph, a third paragraph, and a fourth paragraph. I can cock the character, the story, the scenery. I make the scenery. You don't tell me what the scenery is. When I see something, the scenery is created for me. An interesting thing happened historically. What was the first war that was televised? No. Vietnam. What was the war that had the most opposition? Vietnam. Why? All the other wars you were just being told, huh? Very good. The media propped it up, showed you pictures of, and showed you pictures of what's going on there. Whether you knew the story, you didn't know the story. Any rationale, somebody would say, people were opposed to it. You see people dead on the ground. There's nothing you can do about it. As opposed to talking about it. Or printed media, whatever it may be. Exactly the difference. The same idea over here is when you see something, You take the entire scene at once. Your your mind doesn't have a process to analyze it. It can't take through each thing, each thing, each idea at its own. You're a passive recipient. I have no choice but to accept what they're showing me on the picture. When I hear something, I become active. I have to start putting the story together in my mind. I have to start deciding what happens, how it happens, making it happen. On one hand, we can see there's an advantage of seeing, overhearing. That makes it more powerful, decisive. When I see something, I make a decision. I saw it, guilty, innocent, whatever it may be. I have a question, Rabbi. Yes. Hey, 
<laughs> Lee being a lawyer, <laughs> he gave me an example once about seeing where they had somebody run into his law classroom or something like that and attack somebody. And then the red guy ran out. It was all stage thing. But then the students were asked, what did you see? And everybody saw all different things. So yes, I understand seeing is believing, but seeing is not always objective. Uh, that's true. But if you ask any of those students to consider the other guy's opinion, what do they tell you? I saw it with my own eyes. But that's why when you have two witnesses, two witnesses can see the two different things. A hundred percent. And we can all see a picture and see, you see a person in rags. You can say either he's a poor man or he was too lazy or very cheap and he's so wealthy that he doesn't want to spend his money on an extra pair of pants. We can see the same person in rags, but the decision, that means nobody's going to decide. They all will see the same thing. The conclusion that they come to from what they've seen may be different. But the seeing will be the same thing. While in hearing, you need to be an active participant to come out with any cohesive story. When I see something, I don't have to be active to come up with a story. I can tell you what I saw, and I don't even have to be educated. I can take the stupidest person or a child or somebody who has no education, whatever it may be, and tell them, repeat to me what you saw. While when you hear something, if you don't have a cohesive understanding or comprehension of it, you'll have no ability to be able to transmit it. So if we go about going back to our discussion of the first and second tablets, the first and second tablets, the same idea. The first the tablets, we were granted the gift of seeing the divine truth, while the second set of tablets was a process where the truth was related to us through us understanding the human intervention. We were given the chance to be an active participant to extrapolate the laws that God gave us. While in the first set of tablets, God said, here, divine. I'm giving it all to you. The second set of tablets, God comes along and says, you know what, guys? Here's your chance to be a part of it. I'm not just making it as some divine commandment. You now can be an active participant in the development of the Torah. Yeah, but at the same time, the mountain was standing above all the people. And Hashem said... That was the first set of tablets. That was the first, that was the first set. So it's a magic. It's like you saw a painting, yes. but then you hear from the artist in the details of the painting. But the difference is, but the difference is when you saw that painting, every person who saw the painting saw the same thing. Then they, when they read into it, that's already a level of hearing. You're hearing from somebody else what this means, what that means, what that means. But seeing the painting, everybody's going to tell you what they see. Your decision about it, how detailed it is, and how oriented, what it symbolizes, that's what the artist is there for. But Rabbi, with understanding comes a person's previous life experiences. So Not necessarily. Person... Let, let me stop you right there. Okay. The only reason why that's not a level of understanding. True understanding is, comes from humility without your life experiences. Sometimes your life experiences corrupt your level of understanding. One of the things that we ask of God when we learn Torah is that let my soul be like earth and only then open my heart to your Torah. If I walk into a room with my cup full, I can't put anything else in the cup. The first step to learning is saying, I don't know. Saying, I don't know. That's before you learn. Once you learn, you can't say, I don't know. Text number 13. Page 160. Both the second tablets and the both and the broken tablets were kept in the ark. In the Holy of Holies, the holiest place of the Holy Temple, there was an Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, what was there? The container of the place of the holiest place where God, the holiest place on earth, 
Inside the ark, what does God say? I want both tablets. I want the first set of tablets, which is broken, and the second set of tablets, which is complete. What's the Talmud telling us? The Talmud over here is teaching us it's not just about the ark and the temple, but it's also in our own lives. In our own lives, we need to have the first set of tablets, which is an inspiration of above. And we also have to have the second set of tablets, which is our change through personal struggle. This doesn't mean that the first set of tablets was a first was a full start. If we you know why God didn't just start from plan B, if he knew plan A was going to fail anyway, because what God is telling us, yes, you need that inspiration from above. You can't just come in and walk in and expect that with your own personal struggle, this is the problem. When people deviate from the words of the Torah, when people deviate and say, you know what, the Torah is left up for human interpretation. Let me make it up to apply for my life as I wish and as I go along. That's because they're missing the first tablet. In the ark, there were both tablets. Both tablets is God saying you need the inspiration from above. You need that miraculous divine commandment. Once you realize that the Torah is divine, then you can change through personal struggle. Then you can work on its interpretation. Then you can go through its extrapolation. The first set in tablets is that, yes, I need to have that overwhelming shock and awe to realize that it comes from God. But at the same time, I can't stop there and say, just wait for God to inspire me. I need to also do something for myself. The same is also true in our own life. We have times in our life where we get inspired, where we get excited, where we have that all of a sudden miraculous event that happens. Don't stop there. Take that miraculous event and get involved. Make something of it. Think about it. And here's an interesting idea if you think about it. In every mitzvah that comes with some type of inspiring time, there's always a concrete action that follows it. Let's say Yisker. People get very inspired about the memory of their loved ones. But what does it say in the same prayer of the Yisker? And thereby I will donate to charity because of it. Don't just leave it as a memory in the past. Make something of it. Yisker doesn't mean memories. means I remember I become an active person. In everything in Judaism, in every part of Judaism, whether it's a marriage, there's the chuppah, you're inspired. It's a time you're getting married. And therefore, what do you do? You have to invite guests. You celebrate with people and so on and so forth. There's a concrete action that has to follow every single inspiration. This is the message of the first tablets and the second tablets. That you need to have the first tablets, which is the inspiration. But at the same time, realize that your gift is from the vine. But also you need to remember that the only eternal message and power that will stay with you is what you change because of your personal struggle. The Talmud doesn't just say that both tablets were kept in the ark. The Talmud uses a terminology that the broken tablets were kept in the ark. Why doesn't it just say the first ones? Why the broken tablets? Granted, the tablets were in fact broken, but Moshe broke them. Why do you have to emphasize that they're broken? In a place that you're making a relationship with God, why would it be broken? What broken tablets do you carry in your own life? Well, we all experience failures, setbacks, and challenges. And generally speaking, how do we respond to broken tablets in our life, to the failures in our life? There's two ways how we can respond. Option A, dejection, despair. We succumb to it. We lose faith. We give up. Listen here, I failed once, I failed twice, might as well throw in the towel. Or better yet, we just push it aside and move on. Forget about it. Which one do you think is the better approach? The answer is neither. Very good. Ultimately, approach B is not the way to go either. Don't dump your broken pieces. What the Torah is telling us is carry the ark out of broken tablets in them. Meaning. The, what, what it's telling you is use your failures as an inspiration. Use your failures, use your times and your dejections. Remember every closed door is another door to an open door. Every time a door closes, another door opens for you. 
Remember what your mistakes were and learn from them. Carry the broken tablets together with the second tablets. You want to be able to get through the life's challenges. You want to be able to use and get excitement and energy and inspiration. Remember you had broken tablets. Take those failures and use them to inspire you. Like this, you'll be able to accomplish. Not only have the divine command, not only have the divine inspiration, but just like the second tablets came along with the oral law, the gift that God gave to Moses was that special gift that they didn't only have the divine inspiration, but he had a second tablet which came with the oral law that wherever he went, whatever he person did, there was the ability that you can do and accomplish on your own. An exercise for this week is think back to an event in your life that you consider to be a failure on your part. Search for at least one positive aspect of that experience that you can use in your life moving forward. Next week, same time, same place, we will learn about Korach, who was no ordinary rabble rouser. He presented some type of cognitive and effective ideology that would challenge Moses' teaching as a leadership. And what over here was he challenging? Hierarchies of holiness, communal structure, how he and how what he did try to do, what determines when our differences devolve into conflict and when are they ingredients for harmony. That's next week, our final class in this course. It's going to be on the sixth night of Hanukkah, if I'm not mistaken, which is Tuesday night. Is that the seventh night of Hanukkah? And hopefully you'll join us for the sixth night of Hanukkah. There you go. Sixth night of Hanukkah. Join us next week, same time, same place. Any questions? Yes. Hashem knew, actually, that the second layer tablet had to come in order to promote growth within his... Uh, well, did you... People. Let me ask you the question. Going back to the Tree of Knowledge, Hashem knew that Adam and Eve are going to assume with the Tree of Knowledge? Yes. Depends what you... At the end of the day, we have freedom of choice. God's knowledge does not force our choice. Oh, <laughs>